0: Thank you for listening to the Faith-Free Lutheran Sermon Archive. Today's sermon, for the 13th Sunday after Trinity, is preached by Pastor Jason Goodham. If you have questions or comments about today's sermon, please call the church office at 612-824-5527 or visit our website, faithlutheran-aflc.org. Now let's join in and hear what God has to say to us today. Good morning again, special welcome to those of you who are visiting us this morning. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I would at this time invite you to stand as I read the psalm appointed for this Sunday. The sermon text is taken from Psalm 26, verses 1 through 12, can be found on page 864 in your pew Bible, reading in Jesus' name, Psalm 26. Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity, and I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. Prove me, O Lord, and try me; test my heart and my mind. For your steadfast love is before my eyes, and I walk in your faithfulness. Do not sit with men of falsehood, nor I do not sit with men of falsehood. Nor do I consort with hypocrites. I hate the assembly of evil doers, and I will not sit with the wicked. I wash my hands in innocence and go around your altar, O Lord, proclaiming thanksgiving aloud and telling all your wondrous deeds. O Lord, I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. Do not sweep my soul away with sinners, nor my life with bloodthirsty men, in whose hands are evil devices, and whose right hands are full of bribes. But as for me, I shall walk in my integrity. Redeem me and be gracious to me. My foot stands on level ground. In the great assembly, I will bless the Lord. Heavenly Father, these are your words, and your word is truth. We pray that this morning that you would sanctify us in the truth, that you would convict us of sin in our lives where that is necessary, and that you would comfort and encourage us with the promises of your gospel. In your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So I've got a rhetorical question for you all this morning. You don't have to uh, answer it, but I will understand the answer as soon as I see the guilt on your faces anyway. Here's the question. How many arguments... Have you won as you've been standing in the shower? You know what I'm talking about? The arguments that you run through in your head when you pin your opponent against the corner with your amazing logic and irrefutable evidence. Now, how many of those arguments would you win if you found yourself face to face with your opponent? Would you stumble over your words? Would you cower in fear and in shame? One of the morals of the story for Psalm 26 is be careful what you wish for. And it so happens that the person we might be arguing against is God. Now, it seems as though Psalm 26 has been written by David for those who feel they've been suffering unjustly. After all, a chance to appeal our case before God is exactly what we all want when things aren't going well for us, isn't it? Who, in the midst of their suffering, in the midst of their tribulation, wouldn't love the chance to stand before God, to plead our case before God, and to let them know, no, you must be mistaken, God, I don't deserve this. We want to be vindicated. We want to be delivered. In fact, when I first read through Psalm 26 this week in preparation for the message, I half expected it to have been written by Job. Psalm 26 is more or less exactly what Job clamors for in his book, right? And, And if anyone has suffered unjustly, it's Job. And so, don't we want to, with David, with Job, seize the opportunity and appeal before God to vindicate us? This is where we need to pause. Before we do any other setup, we need to understand what this word vindicate means. The word vindicate literally means to be judged rightly. Now that gives us a little bit more opportunity to pause and think, right? Because if we were to appeal before God for our vindication, wouldn't we rather be appealing for things to go rightly for us, for our fortunes to be reversed, for things to come out as blessing rather than curse? But we've got to stop and think about what it means to be judged rightly and what it means for God to judge us rightly. And so now we have the opportunity. We have just confessed in the reading of Psalm 26 that we want God to vindicate us. So let's see how it works out. There are five sections in Psalm 26, and each one of these sections asks us to be examined before God to look for vindication. And the first section, or strophe, as it's called. All we need to do is read verses 1 and 2, and they will do the heavy lifting for us. Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity. I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. Prove me, O Lord, and try me. Test my heart and my mind. Now, if we're going to be vindicated, if we're going to be judged rightly, by God, we have to ask, have I indeed walked in integrity? Have I trusted in the Lord without wavering? Now, already, at the beginning of this psalm, at the beginning of us making our case before God to be vindicated, you can feel the doubt and the self-justification welling up inside you, can't you? Well, Maybe I haven't walked in integrity all the time, and this is my favorite objection in my own mind, but I have certainly walked in integrity when I've walked in integrity, and that's got to mean something, right? How about your trust? Have you trusted in the Lord without wavering? Can you say that when the heat has been turned up, when the pressure has been put on, that your trust in God has not wavered, that you haven't crumbled under pressure? Can you do that? Well, maybe we can convince ourselves that that's the case. And this is why the second verse is so important. It really drives home the point. Test my heart and my mind. Even if you've walked in integrity most of the time, even if your faith has stayed strong most of the time, or maybe even some of the time, have your thoughts and intentions and motives been laden with the same kind of integrity? Have you always had honorable thoughts Have your motives been pure and not selfish or self-serving or wicked? As it turns out, walking in integrity entails more than you just getting a raw deal here and there when you don't deserve it. It's continual and comprehensive. This is the thing I thought about as I prepared the sermon this week. Walking in integrity means always doing the right thing, not simply avoiding the wrong thing. I had experience a couple of weeks ago at a gas station that illustrated this my mi- uh, in my mind and it, and it really convicted me. So I w- was at a gas station I normally go to, I was filling up one of our vehicles and I, I walked inside to pay And and, and as I walked inside, there was an older gentleman, he was much shorter than I was, uh, probably 10, 15 years older than me, throwing an absolute tantrum at the cashier. Just having an epic, toddler-esque meltdown. And and he was swearing at her, and, and he was angry, and he was livid, and I had no idea what he was doing. It, certainly the cashier didn't deserve this. Yeah, no real person deserves this kind of treatment from an adult, no matter what the situation. And at the end of it, he, he slammed down a Red Bull behind the counter. Not next to it. He actually reached over the counter and slammed down a Red Bull, and it started spraying all over the place. And I stood there, six feet back, thanks to the dots on the floor, And I held my tongue, and I minded my own business because I was tired, I was heading to work, and I just didn't want to get involved. I I, I didn't want my life to be interrupted. And and in a feeble attempt to recover the situation, uh, when he left, I apologized to the cashier for his sake, for his behavior. Now, probably what I should have done is called the guy a coward, grabbed him by his collar and his belt loop, and thrown him out on his backside on the street in front of his car. That's what he deserved. But I didn't do that because I couldn't be troubled. I did not walk in integrity. And immediately after I walked out to my car, I felt shame for doing that. This is the sort of level that God wants us involved in, in our lives, if we're going to appeal to God for our integrity, have you always done the right thing? Or have you merely avoided the wrong thing? Or have you done neither? So let's move on to the second section here. David writes, I do not sit with men of falsehood, nor do I consort with hypocrites. I hate the assembly of the evildoers, and I will not sit with the wicked. This one seems pretty straightforward. I think at first reading, most of us here in this room right now would claim that we're doing pretty good in this area. I don't know that I recognize anyone here as running in the wrong crowds. Uh, I don't expect you to see any of you in the pool hall in River City that starts with P that rhymes with T that stands for trouble. I can't go down that road, maybe. But here's a question. In your life, when it comes to consorting with men of falsehood or uh, enabling hypocrites, which politicians do you support? Do you tolerate? Do you advocate for in an effort to make your life better? Do you consort with hypocrites? I'm not even picking on a side here, but it's something to meditate. Or how about this? Does your behavior on Sunday morning reflect your behavior on Monday through Saturday? Do you perform for a completely different audience during the week than you do here? Do you make yourself out to be the kind of hypocrite you're called, by God's word, to reject? Can you say that 100% of the time? Or the third section. I wash my hands in innocence and go around your altar, O Lord, proclaiming thanksgiving out loud and telling all your wondrous deeds. Since our innocence is what we're hoping to convince God of, we won't spend too much time there. But how are you doing proclaiming thanksgiving? Have you been grateful? Have you been grateful out loud? Or have you found that it is just far too easy and chic to join with the masses in grumbling and complaining about little, literally every little inconvenience in your life? And just for kicks here, at the end, how would you evaluate your own personal public proclamation of God's wondrous deeds? I want to be careful how we think about this because I, as your pastor for more than a decade now, have proclaimed to you it's not your responsibility to tell every single person you ever encounter about Jesus. Not everyone in here is an evangelist, and that's okay. But I'm talking about the opportunities when you've had to glorify and magnify God's name. I'm talking about the opportunities you've had to be publicly grateful for God's provision. Have you done so, or have you, like me, used your introvertedness as an excuse to just shy away? To go hide in a corner? To put yourself in voluntary and convenient solitary confinement? Or the fourth section. O Lord, I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. Now, I'm going to go out on a limb and guess that you really didn't expect to do a serious self-examination of your own church attendance this morning. After all, you're here right now. But do you love to be here? I think this is a perfect passage for Labor Day weekend. Do you love to be here right now or would you have rather been at the lake? Do you love to be here right now or would you have rather slept in until 10 a.m. on the unofficial last weekend of the summer? Do you love to be here right now or would you rather, like me, be sitting in the dairy room at Costco where the temperature is 50 degrees colder than it is right now? Or how about this? Is church an inconvenience on your busy schedule is one hour a week just about what you can tolerate and anything more puts the squeeze on your style are you so unreluctant to are so reluctant to open up your schedule to participate and give people of your spiritual gifts that you will come on sunday morning but anything beyond that is too much Do you love the Lord's house? And do you love the Lord's congregation? And do you do so joyfully? And so we've arrived at the final section of Psalm 26. And David makes before God his final appeal. And in this final appeal, I've come to believe that it's more of a confession rather than an appeal. David writes this, But as for me, I shall walk in my integrity, redeem me, and be gracious to me. Now, if we're honest, if God's Word and God's Spirit have brought you to the point where you can be honest about the previous four sections... If you are ready to admit that the integrity you walk in is not the integrity God demands, then what you need right now is redemption. If I clamor for God to vindicate me, to judge me rightly, while I am still in my sin or in my selfishness, all I can possibly hope to receive is judgment and condemnation. This brings us back to Job, doesn't it? Job, for 37 or so chapters, appeals to God. No, God, you're wrong. You missed the entire point. And God shows up. And God gives Job the opportunity to appeal his case. And from the whirlwind, God stoops down to Job and says, dress for action like a man and I will question you, and you will answer me. And so David moves from appealing to God's justice to a rather honest opinion of himself and appealing for God's mercy. And here's an excellent time for us to pause and to remember what we've said since the beginning of this series on the book of Psalms. The Psalms are most often the words of Jesus or the words about Jesus. And so for us this morning, Psalm 26 works beautifully as Jesus' own prayer. And here Jesus is asking for vindication. And it makes so much more sense to us because Jesus did walk in integrity. His thoughts and his heart were pure all of the time. He walked in perfect faith and trust of God and lived a perfectly sinless life while on earth, perfectly fulfilling God's law. Jesus did not tolerate sin or hypocrisy of the men in power and authority. He did not hobnob with the rulers or celebrities or power brokers of his day. In fact, they were the ones who were most often the targets of his critiques and his rebukes. And even beyond that, Jesus did not solely focus on the behavior of the ruling elites as if they were the only ones that mattered. He famously rebuked Peter, which we heard about in the gospel lesson. His own disciple saying, get out of my way, Satan. As Peter stood as an obstacle to God's mission for Jesus. Jesus was perfectly thankful to God always being careful to direct the witnesses of his miracles back to his loving Father. Jesus perfectly loved being in God's house. He loved fellowship with God. He loved being around God's people. He stayed in the temple as a 12-year-old rather than return home with his family. He angrily cleansed the temple of the money changers. And he had compassion for those who wanted a renewed fellowship with God. And he helped them frequently. And he helped them perfectly. And for all this, for all of this truth and beauty, for all of his kindness and humility, for all of his gratefulness and the clarity of his words, Jesus was crucified. He was beaten and whipped and mocked and scorned. He was hung on a cross by sinners just like you and me. And so that's why it's important for us to see and hear this prayer of Jesus. Jesus, as He hung from the cross, crying out with King David's words, vindicate me. But as Jesus prays for vindication, as Jesus cries out to God the Father, He's not crying out, For God to smite his enemies. He's not crying out for God to snuff us out. He's crying out for his work of redemption to be judged rightly. For God to see what Jesus has done for you and for me and to receive that and to joyfully apply it to us. Jesus wants you and me and the whole world to know that what he has done, that what he experienced unjustly, unfairly, is something he has done for you so that God might not only be gracious and merciful, but that he might be just. And so our prayer this morning is the same prayer that Jesus prayed and that David prayed. We cry to God to vindicate us, but not so that we might get a bigger piece of the pie, not so that we can give the short end of the stick to someone else. We cry to God to vindicate us because of Jesus, that He would judge rightly, that He would judge our sins on Jesus Christ, that he would judge our death as Jesus' death, and that in looking at us because of Jesus, he would judge not guilty, and that he would judge righteous. Our prayer is that, vindicated, and because of Jesus, because of his death And because of his resurrection, and because of his redemption, you are vindicated. And because in all of those areas that we described, areas where we must all recognize that we've failed, in those areas, God looks at you. He looks at your integrity. He looks at your response to the wicked and the hypocrites. He looks at your thankfulness. He looks at your love to be in his house and hear his word and he sees Jesus in your place and in return. And because of this, you are forgiven. You are granted by God eternal life. And you now are free to do all of these things joyfully to respond, and to be the person who asks God to be vindicated. Amen. And now may the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.